Well, we had an interesting vacation. My mom came. Oh, it's a little bright. I, I don't think we need the uh, pulpit. My mom came uh, to the hotel. She had a mild uh, sniffle as she got into the car. When she got out of the car, she had full-blown COVID. Uh, the latest variant hits very fast, but it's not near as nasty. Uh, of course, everybody caught it. <laughs> so the, the end of the vacation was effectively cut a little short. Um, I was here Sunday last, but I chose to leave because it probably seemed like a better idea, and it was because I, by Monday I was mildly symptomatic. Bob, I think the, uh, the pulpit's still live. Uh, I don't think I need it, do I? Um, okay, so here we are. You know, it's weird. I only missed two Sundays, and it seems like such a long time. But I'm so glad to see everyone. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Our memory verse, same as it was two weeks ago. Let's say it together. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So last week, I was on vacation. Uh, Bob brought the lesson on the call of Matthew. I'm sure that went great. And that wasn't last week. That was the week before. This week, or the week before that, we talked about Christ's ministry of healing, some truths about the cause of sickness and misery in our world, and we discussed our understanding of God's promises for our healing in this world and in the next. And as usual, we'll be using references read by uh, Alexander Scorby. Speaking of which, ma'am? Chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. So the passage opens, after this there was a feast of the Jews. Now, this could have been any of the three big feasts of the year, but many assume it was Passover. So this would be the second Passover. Jesus would just now be completing his first year of ministry. Uh, and he's starting his second, and he's going to be moving in this second year into a new phase of his ministry, revealing more truths, um, uncomfortable truths for the Israelites. And in that second year is where we first start seeing a lot of conflict between Christ and the Pharisees. Healing the impotent, God chose to bless a certain pool near Jerusalem. As scholars believe it was one of two pools outside the walls of the city, and this is an old model of uh, ancient Jerusalem. This picture shows the Greek-influenced architecture that uh, Reconstruction has shown existed at about this period. And on a certain schedule, 
The Bible says on a certain, uh, of a season. So on a certain schedule, a miracle would happen here. Bethesda, or excuse me, Beth- Bethsaida, the house of mercy. An angel from God would disturb the waters of the pool. Now this pool collected rainwater from this part of the city and was part of the general water supply of the area. So this angel, a messenger from God, would disturb the waters. And whoever got into the water after the waters were disturbed would be completely healed. So this is a pool that collects rainwater. So when it is raining, water flows in. When it stops raining, that pool is just going to be perfectly smooth. And it's city water, drinking water, so people are not going to be bathing in it. It's just going to be sitting there perfectly smooth. So when the angel disturbs the water, it should be very visible. Now, why would God do such a thing? Well, first of all, who are we to ask this question of God? Amen. <laughs> not our job. But I see in this something very typical of the way God works in the world. This is a regularly scheduled miracle. This shows the faithful the power of God. On the other hand, it's small enough and infrequent enough that the unbelieving can ignore it. And in many ways, that's the way God works in our world today. If you look around, there are miracles if you're willing to believe. And it's perfectly possible for everybody else to just ignore them. It's also, and I think more importantly, a setup. God put this in place to show the power of Christ. God set up many things to highlight his son during his visit to the earth over three years. And there's no question in my mind that this is one of them. Now, Jesus visits the pool and speaks of the man who's been there for 38 years. Now, we don't know how often the pool was troubled. The Bible just says of a certain season. But what if it were once every major feast day? I don't know that this is the case, but let's just examine that as a thought exercise. I think it would make a lot of sense. A lot of people are there for, in Jerusalem for a pilgrimage. Great time for God to show his power to remind Israel who he is. Now, this would be three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Booths. If so, and the guy had been there for 38 years, there were 114 times that this guy had failed to get to the water soon enough. He was just too crippled to move quickly. 114 times. Maybe a little discouraging. Jesus comes to this man and asks him if he wants to be healed. The man explains, he doesn't say that he wants to be healed. He explains why it's hopeless. Of course he wants to be healed, but he recognizes that he will never make it on his own. And he has no one to help. Does this seem like a familiar picture to anybody? It's a beautiful picture of salvation. Jesus heals him with a word. And says, pick up your bed and go home. Now this should be a cause for rejoicing. But that's not where the story goes. And let's continue the story, please. 
in verse 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed, and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus, and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So the healed man is carrying his bed to his home. Now, he would have had a home. He didn't live in the pool at Bethsaida. If we go by the assumption that this happened during feast days, someone would have brought him, or he would have very slowly tottered himself to the pool, on the days where the pool was expected to be troubled, and he would have settled in, waiting and hoping. And he was probably a poor man. He wasn't an important man, so he wouldn't have gotten the best seat or the best pallet right next to the water, where if the water's uh, disturbed, all you got to do is roll in. He would have probably been up on the fifth porch. But he's carrying his bed home, and he's stopped by the religious police. No, not really. There wasn't a religious police. But there were absolutely people who believed it was their job to correct everyone else's failings. Yep. And they were the Pharisees. And if you think that the Pharisaical outlook and attitude was something 2,000 years ago, then you haven't looked around very closely at Christian circles today. Because we are a little too willing to tell everybody else what they're doing wrong. The healed man, who's questioned about carrying his bed, well, he just passes the buck. I'm carrying my bed because the guy who healed me told me to carry my bed. Not my fault, boss. Well, who was he, they ask. He says, I don't know. Some guy came up, healed me, told me to carry my bed home. So I'm carrying my bed home. Jesus later finds him in the temple and warns him, Sin no more, lest a worst thing come unto thee. Now, we've seen in some of the previous lessons, sin doesn't necessarily cause illness. And there's no reason to believe that this man's illness was the result of sin. So the warning Jesus gives him, sin no more lest a worst thing come upon you, seems a little weird if sin is not the cause of illness. Then what is this worst thing Christ is talking about? The sin that Christ is talking about, I believe, is the sin of disbelief. Sin no more. Change your life and accept Christ as your Savior or a worse thing will come upon you, which is an eternity in hell. Now, 
To me, that's the most logical interpretation. Go with what you want. But I don't think he's talking about further sickness. And as soon as the healed man finds out who it was who had healed him, he goes and tattles on him to the Pharisees. Which made the Pharisees want to kill Jesus for working on the Sabbath. Is is that a little bit of an overreaction? Uh, Jesus told a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, so we need to kill him. Does anyone follow that logic? Is it a special sort of logic? You have to understand the players. So, let's talk about the Sabbath. First record of resting, oh, that should say seventh day. I apologize. First record of of resting on the seventh day was by God after creation. Did God need to rest after creation? He's omnipotent, omnipotent, all power. If he expends all the energy it takes to create the entire universe in six days, how much does he got left? All of it. He didn't need to rest. It was a pattern that he was establishing in the end for us. The Sabbath was given to Israel in Exodus chapter 31, 17. It says it's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It's a literal reminder to us that the creation of the world was in six days. Not six ages, not six anything else, six days. It's a memorial also for Israel of their time in Egypt and a time to contemplate God and his things. A time set aside every week to remember God because we so easily forget. The Sabbath was often kept imperfectly by Israel. And the prophets spake against that. For example, Jeremiah in chapter 17 said, Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I commanded your fathers. The focus of this verse is on carrying, but note where they're carrying it. In and out of the gate. In and out of the houses. This is actually a comment on mercantile work. Business. Performing business. They weren't just carrying a load. They were out buying and selling. And carrying a load if it's necessary. I mean, on the Sabbath day, do mothers quit carrying their babies? Of course not. That would be wacky. But on the other hand, doing business on a Sunday, well, that's wrong. Because the day was set aside for contemplation and for things of God. Now, the Pharisees, so that was the Sabbath. God gave this to Israel. So let's set that aside and let's talk about the Pharisees. The Pharisees, remember, they had an oral tradition, which to them was equally important to the word of God. The word of the rabbis down through the ages. And if you know anything about modern Judaism, they're still there. That's exactly where they are today. 
The healed man was breaking one of their oral rulings, which clarified God's prohibition of work. He was breaking one of their rules. The Mishnah, which is a list uh, clarifying God's prohibition against work on the Sabbath, lists 39 primary kinds of labor that were not allowed on that day. Was this God's word? No, this was the word of man, clarifying the word of God. Good thing we never do that anymore. Eleven of these concerned about making food, twelve about making clothes, seven about treating deer carcasses, whether you're producing food or leather. They were just about daily tasks that you couldn't do on the Sabbath according to the Pharisees, and one of them was carrying a load. Pharisees believed that Rome was in Israel as a judgment of God against Israel. Now, I'm not going to say they were wrong, but they believed that if they could make Israel righteous, then God would remove Rome. This was a big focus of the Pharisee movement. We're going to purify Israel through good works, and God will take Rome away, because Rome was much hated. Jesus, lacking respect for their rules and traditions, was a danger to their righteousness program, so he had to go. That's why they wanted to kill him, because a true prophet from God would have agreed with the Pharisees. Right? Because the Pharisees are righteous. Well, in their minds. And if your sarcasm detectors did not just go off, I suggest you go have them recalibrated. Jesus answered them and said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. So he's setting himself equal to God by this statement. He notes that God continues to work on the Sabbath. It still rains. The sun still rises and sets. God keeps the world in order on the Sabbath. Similarly, Jesus feels perfectly justified in working on the Sabbath because he's doing his Father's will. It's a very reasonable response. And if we extend that a little further, I mean, what? Oh, actually, this is, sorry, next section. Let's go on to Matthew. I'm getting ahead of myself, please. Chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God, and did eat the showbread? which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. 
the disciples were breaking one of those 11 rules of the Mishnah concerning food preparation. They were breaking the laws of the Pharisees because they were walking through the field, breaking off big old corbs, corns, big old cobs of corn and chewing on them, right? No. There was no corn in Israel. That is maize. Be careful when you read the Bible. Because the meanings of words have shifted. Corn is a new, uh, a new world crop. It didn't exist in ancient Israel. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't grow in Israel today because it requires a lot more water. Okay? They were probably eating wheat or barley, or yeah, most likely wheat or barley, off the stalk before it dried. So they were, you know, they were taking ripe wheat berries... Uh, and, and incidentally, I'm sure they weren't dry, because if they were dry, it's just you ruin your teeth chewing on that stuff. And they just, you know, would strip it off, and they were eating it. And again, it says corn, because in English, the word corn means a small, hard thing, which is how you can get a corn on your toe, which has nothing to do with maize. And that has nothing to do with the lesson, other than know the meaning of words when you read your Bible. So, they're breaking one of the 11 rules of the Mishnah concerning food preparation. And so the religious police jump right on them. How dare your disciples break this important rule? It was given by God, in their mind, because they held the oral tradition equal to the written. Christ presents two counter-arguments to the Pharisees. First of all, David, fleeing from Saul ate some dedicated bread because sustenance was more important than the rules. And the priests work on the Sabbath, but it's God's work. Even though they're bearing burdens, it's not mercantile burdening, it's service for God. If we, as a church, believed you should never do work on Sunday then Brother Richard carrying these things from the uh, Sunday school building would be a terrible violation of that. Yep. But it has a godly purpose. And we're not about, hopefully, all the little rules. Amen. Jesus then, after giving him these two counter-arguments, brings in the underlying principle. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jesus is saying what is important is obedience to the principles behind the law. Knowing God and living his way is more important than the law itself. Especially the minutia of man's rules around the Sabbath, which have nothing to do with God's law. It's not about writing 39 rules that explains what work is and what work isn't. Yeah. It's about remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy by spending your time on the things of God. And if in celebrating the Sabbath, you pick up your child and carry them across the room, you're not breaking it. And if you turn on the radio to listen to 
preaching and turn off the radio, you're not breaking the Sabbath, even though Orthodox Jews will not do that. Because it's breaking a rule. Uh, the, the story I heard, and I don't remember where I heard it, which illustrates just how, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the word silly, Orthodox Judaism gets, is on the Sabbath day, this family, which had a cat, the cat, bouncing around the house, had accidentally turned on the radio and turned it on really loud. The family, unable to break the Sabbath by turning off the radio, left the house. And they were in the yard. And people would come by and ask. But they had to be careful about how they explained the problem. Because if in explaining the problem, they asked someone to go into the house and turn off the radio, they would be breaking their rules by encouraging someone to work on the Sabbath. Yeah. And we're talking wraparound canvas blazer with the sleeves that tie in the back. Okay, just... Um... And I apologize because I'm mocking someone's religious belief. But mankind's religion can get pretty silly. And we always have to watch out that we're not walking down that road in our pursuit of righteousness. So Jesus gives the Pharisees two examples. He explains the underlying principle And he challenges them. You go back here. He challenges them. He says, you should understand this. Remember, the Pharisees and their close friends, the scribes, these were the foremost experts on the law. If you wanted to know what the law said, you just found a Pharisee and asked him. And that attitude of there are experts in God's law is still part of the reality of Judaism today. Um, whoever saw uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, wait, let me... Who didn't see Fiddler on the Roof? Anybody? Okay, really? Okay, okay. Um, I don't know that it's my job to give you permission, but I think it's a movie worth watching. Um, Fiddler on a Roof looks at Jews uh, in Eastern Europe uh, around the time of, I believe, World War II. Am I... No, yeah, around there. Or, or World War I, maybe? Okay, but the, the main, the main uh, protagonist, Tevya, is a dairy farmer. But he is proud of his learning, and he is always pestering the rabbi with questions. Because it's his job to try to stump the rabbi. Because the rabbi is the expert. And you can tell the rabbi in the movie is getting a little tired of the questions from Tevya. But it's that idea that there is an expert on the law that you can turn to because, sadly, uh, they don't think about having their own Bible. We, we have the privilege of having our own Bible and being able to read it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have experts on the Bible who uh, I would always go to if I had questions. Some of them are here in our church with us. Um, but Jesus challenges these experts on the law and says, you're experts on the law. You should know what this verse means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. And that just undercuts the Pharisees' entire position. 
because their position's all about sacrifice, all about the minutiae, all about the tiny little rules, <coughs> trying to get there through good works. But then Christ goes a step further. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Now there is an inflammatory statement. Because this is a pretty clear claim. The Pharisees know full well who is Lord of the Sabbath. Yahweh. Excuse me a second. Something is trying to get my attention. Yes, yes. My monitor lost me. Bad monitor. I apologize. I forgot to turn it down. Again, Yahweh is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees sought God's approval in works, but they rejected the very God they sought to please when they wanted to kill Jesus. You can't reject anyone a whole lot more than wanting to kill them. There's, a, there's some very interesting ideas in this story, these two events, you know, where Jesus is being persecuted and hunted and hopefully put to death by the very people who are trying to purify Israel through works because they've totally missed the boat. Now the book of Mark adds a comment that Matthew did not include in this uh, story of the disciples uh, stripping uh, wheat or barley off as they walk through the field. And he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man who both needs the day of rest, unlike God, and needs a sign a time set aside to contemplate God and consider their set-aside position. One of the things that we should consider on our day of rest is how privileged we are Amen. and how much we owe God for what he's done for us. And, and going back to picking on Brother Richard, that's certainly one of the objectives of, of this labor that he performs on Sunday. Bad Brother Richard. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Today, there are three different common opinion among Christians. I'm going to use heavy air quotes here uh, because there are many that call themselves Christian. Some still practice Saturday as Sabbath. Most consider the day of Christ's resurrection as the new Sabbath day, and that would include kind of us. Some count all days the same. Now, Paul said in Romans, one man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regard it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not, we would say fasted, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. It's not the specific practice. It's the intent and the purpose. Let us not fall into the ways of the Pharisees as we judge other churches. So applications. What are some present day examples of adding regulations to the law of God? Oh, there are so many. Anyone, anybody want to jump in with one? 